It is that we can sing, death has no grip on me, and that you are my living hope. That each of us can say that because of what Jesus Christ did for us. We thank you for this time. We thank you for the time of worship we've had. We just pray now, Lord, that as we look into your word, that you would just uh, guide our thoughts. Lord, that you would speak through me, that uh, whatever is said would be for your glory and would uh, bring honor and praise to you. So we lift up this time now before you and we commit it to you. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. One of the, uh, the neat things that uh, I've had the opportunity to do in my career at Chevron is a two-year kind of uh, detour that God placed into my path. And I'd been working in the retail marketing division of Chevron for a long time. And I'd been traveling extensively for about three years, and that wasn't good on the family. And so we had been praying that God would open something up. And out of the blue, I mean, through no effort of my own, God providentially opened up a role for me in our aviation business. And so I got to spend a couple of years uh, pricing jet fuel and aviation gasoline. And that was, that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that time. And one of the neat things when you work in a big company is you get lots of trinkets. You know, we, we call them trinkets and trash. Some of it's just kind of trash. But you get some pretty cool trinkets at times as well. And one of the neat trinkets I got while in the aviation group was a set of those orange batons you've seen on the uh, you know, people on the tarmac. Matter of fact, this is my set right here. I like these. They're kind of fun. They're just kind of fun to pick up and wave around sometimes. Um, we're going to use these this morning. I want you to... Uh, to get a visual using those. But those batons are actually used for a purpose. You, you, they may look like they're kind of doing all kinds of you know, weird things. They're telling you this pilot to steal third base or something. But they're actually used for a purpose. They're used to help guide the plane from the tarmac to the gate ramp. And so they've got to hit a pretty specific spot. And it's a little bit harder to put a big plane onto a specific spot on a gate ramp than it is to pull our you know, SUV into the garage. It's it's much di- more difficult uh, task. There was a guy, uh, Gary Peterson, a long time ago. You'll know this because he was with a pilot with Northwest Airlines, which I don't think exists anymore. Um, I'm not sure. But he put it this way. Because of the length of the airplane, we need additional assistance from those guys. To connect the jetway bridge, an arriving plane's got to center itself perfectly on a J-line that's painted on the tarmac. He said, because the airplane door is behind the cockpit and the J-line is beneath the airplane, pilots can't hit their mark without help. There are eyes on the ground. They're alerting us to anything that we can't see down there. Now, you might be thinking, why is he telling me all of this? <laughs> what does this have to do with Scripture? Well, today we're going to look at the life of Solomon. We're going to kind of take a kind of just a quick overview look at the life of Solomon today. And we're going to see that Solomon really could have used somebody with some orange batons waving in his life at times. Because some of his choices just didn't hit the mark. And so as we look at those choices, we're going to look at how we apply those to our lives. And I'm going to pull these out a couple of times. I'm not going to be like Nate Branson. I'm not going down there among you. Don't make me do that. But I am going to pull these out as a visual because I want you to get a visual. I want you to think about when you're making choices in your life, I want you to think about these batons and think about whether or not you're hitting the mark or not. So let's start with a little bit of background. Last week, we did start a new series of sermons we're going to go through this fall, and it's called Stories with Significance. And if you remember, we learned last week about David, and John took us through uh, part of David's life in the cave of Adullam, and we learned some very important things from that. And today, we're going to look at the life of Solomon. 
Now, we learned last week that Solomon, uh, or we didn't learn it, but we do know that Solomon is David's son. He's one of David's sons. And David and Bathsheba had a first son that uh, you probably are well aware that because of their sin, God took that son from them. But God providentially gave them another son, and they named him Solomon. We all know Solomon. But did you also know that God gave Solomon a special name? It tells us in 2 Second uh, Samuel twelve twenty five, it tells us that the prophet Nathan brought a message from God to David and told him to give the child the name Jedidiah, which means beloved of God. Now, although we all reference him as Solomon, it's kind of unclear whether or not Jedidiah was actually used during his reign or not. But what is clear is that God gave him this name because God had a love for Solomon. It was a sign of his love. And so we're going to look, though, at Solomon's life because there's good to learn from and there's some bad things to learn from that we need to apply in our lives and avoid some of those things. So let's start with the good. First part of Solomon's life, he did some really good and wise things. One of the things he did initially that was really good was he kind of followed the fifth, um, uh, the fifth commandment. I almost said amendment. The fifth commandment of you know, honor your father and mother. And when David was on his deathbed, he gave Solomon some instructions. He said, there's some things that haven't been done yet that need to be taken care of in your kingdom if there's going to be peace. And if you read through uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, you can read about those things. But Solomon followed those. He obeyed his father, and he did those things. And it was a very good thing. Solomon also had to deal wisely early in his reign about his, one of his brothers, a uh, brother from a different mother, um, uh, which was Adonijah. And before Solomon was anointed king, Adonijah knew that David was coming at the end of his life, and he decided he was going to be king. And he got together with uh, Joab and with Abiathar the priest, and they conspired this plot to make Adonijah the king of Israel. And they went through all this stuff. Well, of course, they didn't tell anybody about this. Well, they, they just tried to kind of do it on their own. And you can read about all of this in First Kings. I mean, talk about reading a, a soap opera story of what's going on. Uh, it's an amazing thing. I think John mentioned how much of David's life there's just, it's an incredible read to go through it. But after a little bit of prompting, though, when this, this uh, plot came about, when uh, Nathan the prophet found out about it and Bathsheba found out about it, they actually went to David. And ultimately, David did anoint Solomon as the king. But now Solomon had a problem. What's he going to do about Adonijah? If there's going to be peace, you can't have two guys sitting there wanting to be in charge. There's got to be one. Well, let's read about it. In 1 Kings chapter 1, and, and we're going to go through 1 Kings. We're going to jump around a few chapters. So if you want to turn to 1 Kings, please feel free to do so. I think some of the verses are going to be on the screen for you as well. But in 1 Kings 1, 50 to 52, it tells us this. But Adonijah, in fear of Solomon, went and took hold of the thrones of the altar. Then Solomon was told, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon and is clinging to the horns of the altar. He says, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Solomon replied in verse 52, if he shows himself to be worthy, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. But if evil is found in him, he will die. Then King Solomon sent men, and they brought him down from the altar, and Adonijah came and bowed down to King Solomon. And Solomon said, go to your throne, uh, go to your home, not your throne, <laughs> go to your home. And everything seemed good at this point. You think, okay, crisis averted, 
you know, Adonijah's going to his home, everything's good. But it wasn't. Adonijah wasn't, uh, wasn't happy about this. He still, had, uh, he still had his eyes on the throne. And he hatched his own little plot after this. And he went to Bathsheba, and he was going to try to make a request through Bathsheba to King David that was going to ultimately let him usurp the throne from David. Uh, so he did not have, uh, he had evil in his, in his heart with this. But uh, when, the, when Solomon actually discerned what was happening, he, you know, he found out what was happening, discerned what was going on, he did exactly what he said was going to happen, and Adonijah was killed. The result of all that, though, if you read in 1 Kings 2.46, was that the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. And we all know uh, that Solomon, from that point forward, there's a time of peace. Uh, Solomon's kingdom is known as a, as a reign of peace. And so throughout his reign, there was peace in Israel. So there's some of the good things. And maybe the most famous good decision Solomon made, you probably know, was when he answered God. And God said, ask anything that you want. Now, can you imagine any of us being given that? God coming to you and saying, ask me for anything you want. I mean, wow. Think of the list of stuff we could come up with. It would probably be pretty impressive. But listen to what uh, Solomon asked for, and listen to God's response for it, because it tells us in 1 Kings 3. In 1 Kings 3, verses 5 through 14, it reads this. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too many to count or to number. So give your servant a wise and discerning heart to govern your people, and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? That's an impressive request. And let's listen to what God responds, starting in verse 10. It says, The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life, or for wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. What a difference in Solomon's request compared to his brother Adonijah. Adonijah was self-seeking in everything he did. But Solomon, rather than asking for stuff for himself, asked for discernment and wisdom to lead God's people. And God gave him that and all the other things that a king you would think normally would ask for. Listen to what James 3.17 says about wisdom from heaven. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And in Colossians 2.3, we find out that it is in Christ 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Gives us a little picture of why we worship the Lord every Sunday. And Solomon amazed people with this wisdom. I mean, Solomon's wisdom became known far and wide. Uh, probably the most famous story, remember the uh, Solomon, the two ladies and the baby, and you know they're trying to figure out the two mothers, both claiming it. And Solomon had to discern who was the real mother. And he amazed people with that. Matter of fact, listen to what, uh, what the Scripture tells us in 1 Kings 4, if you want to flip a page. 1 Kings 4, 29 to 34, tell us about the wisdom that he got from God. This is what it says. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezraite. Wiser than Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life, from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also spoke about animals, and birds, and reptiles, and fish. Incredible, incredible wisdom. From all nations... People came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. God truly gave him wisdom that has never been seen since. But maybe beyond all of that, maybe the most important thing that Solomon did during the early part of his reign was that he fulfilled what God had ordained for him in building God's temple. If you remember, David wanted to build God's temple. David had it on his heart to do that. But God said, no, you aren't to build it. It's going to be your son, Solomon. And Solomon fulfills that. If you go through 1 Kings 6 and 7, you can read all about it. And it's incre- it takes two chapters just to talk about how ornate the temple was and all the preparations and everything that went into building God's temple. It was amazing. And, and you can read through that. And so at this point, I'd say if somebody's on the ground in Solomon's life, you know, they've probably done, yep, Solomon, you're, you're, you're right there. You're, you're, you're on track doing this. And he's right on track. But a couple of things that I wrote down that maybe describe Solomon's life in that first part of his reign. A couple of words I wrote were he was wise. He was a strategist. Remember how he dealt with his brother. He was a man of peace. He was a builder. He was a worshiper, it tells us in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 3. He was discerning. He got that from God. He was a scholar. We just read about all that he he talked about. And then also he was wealthy. God had given him tremendous wealth. So things are going well. Middle part of his reign. But let me ask you this. College football started yesterday, so football's on my mind. (laughs) What's one of the things that differentiates a really good team from a bad one? And I'm sure among all of the answers you guys are probably thinking of right now, I would suggest that one of the key things is what happens at halftime. A really good coach knows that he needs to look at what's happening and take stock of what's happening, good or bad, and at halftime they make adjustments. They make adjustments to make sure that the team hits their mark or wins the game. I was once actually given a book uh, titled Halftime. It was uh, by a guy named Bob Buford, and this was a guy that uh, God had blessed him in his business dealings and he got to the halfway part of his, or the halftime, or halfway part of his life, and he had actually met all of the financial goals that he'd set for himself. 
and, his, and God had blessed him. But then he had to make a decision. He said, you know what? Am I going to spend the rest of my life serving these financial goals and just getting more? Or am I going to spend the second half of my life following God? And luckily, he chose God. And he went on to write a series of books all based on this halftime concept. And the whole concept is assessing where we are in our life and saying, wait a minute, what's it going to take for me to focus on what's truly important in life? And that is the things that have eternal impact, the things that are for God's kingdom. And so he wrote these set of books, and they're really good. If you, if you want to read them, they're, they're really good. You don't have to wait till you're halfway through your life either to read them. Um, but, they, but they are good. He's got some really, really good stuff in there. Now, maybe sports analogies don't do it for you. So let me try a financial analogy here. Um, have you ever seen one of those either infomercials where they're trying to get you to invest, or maybe you've received a, a, uh, an ad or something, and they're trying to get you to invest your money? And it goes on and gives you all the glowing aspects about this financial investment and opportunity that you have. But there's usually at the very end some really fast talk or there's some really small print at the bottom. And it usually goes something like this. Past performance is not a guarantee of future earnings or success. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) You see that. And we need to pay attention to that. Because not only is it a financial lesson, it's a life lesson for us. In other words, we can't rest on our laurels. We can't just sit back and say, yeah, I did something for God. You know, I I served at camp when I was in high school. Therefore, everything's always going to be good. You know, I'm good. Me and God, we're we're solid. It's like, that's not the way it works. Um, And if Solomon had done done this, if he had stopped and taken stock of where things were heading, he might have made some changes in his life. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said said it this way. Great is the art of beginning, but greater the art is of ending. And Solomon himself said in Ecclesiastes, the end of the matter is better than its beginning. So at this point, we do need to stop and look at some of the bad things, some of the bad choices that would be the downfall of Solomon. And I would say, as we look at them, we're not looking at them so that we can wag a finger and say, you know, bad Solomon. That's not the point here. We're looking at them to say, you know what, I could fall into some of the same things. How do I avoid some of those same things in my life, and how do I avoid some of these downfalls? Let's learn from what Solomon's life teaches us. Well, there was an early warning sign in Solomon's reign. uh, Back in 1 Kings chapter 3, and actually in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. Now, at first, first sounding, this probably probably doesn't sound too bad. It's like, okay, what's wrong with a king... You know, making a a marriage, a political alliance and stuff. But if you go back to Deuteronomy, it actually tells us about about, uh, Egypt and concerning Egypt and Israel that you are not to go that way again. And we're going to look at that full verse here in just a minute. And in Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4, the Israelites were warned about this. And they were warned about the consequences of marrying foreign women from the nations that God had driven out of the promised land. It says this, Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Unfortunately, these marriage alliances would become a major pattern in Solomon's life. And ultimately, we're going to see later on, it did exactly what Scripture just warned us. And Solomon's heart was turned away from the Lord. Now, I would say most of us, are not in any danger of being married for a political alliance. That's the good news. But I think the whole 
point here isn't necessarily that. It's, are we allowing anyone, a spouse, a loved one, a friend, a co-worker, anybody, are we allowing anybody to come in and turn our hearts away from the Lord? Are they trying to turn us to a, another religion or to serve other gods, you know, small g of gods on that? Are we aware of that? Are we taking stock to make sure that no one's leading us astray? And I would tell you for the men out there, I think there's a, sp- a particular calling for us that we need to be the spiritual leaders of our homes. Are we doing that? Are we assuring that the word of God is the central focus in our homes and that we're teaching our kids about that? Uh, if, if you're not, if you haven't been doing that, God's calling you today. Step up and start doing that. Become the spiritual leader of your home. And I think that applies to the single men here, too, as well. It's not just the married men. God's called you to be a spiritual leader, and so we need to take that on. Now, another seemingly innocent thing that we read in 1 Kings that's a great warning in Solomon's life, and this is where, you know, we just we saw the he was here, and then he had this marriage alliance, and now he's probably heading over this way on this stuff. It's in 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 26. And if you look at all the verses around that, it's all about the things that Solomon had acquired, all of the wealth and the, the acquisitions Solomon had. And in 1 Kings 4.26, right in the middle of all of that, it tells us that Solomon, uh, had also, uh, Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Now, let me just give a, a side note. There is some debate about whether that should be 40,000 or 4,000. Um, if you compare it to Second Chronicles chapter 9, uh, verse 25, you can see that. And we can talk about that. That's an internal debate we can talk about later. But the important thing here is that's a lot of horses. That's a whole lot of horses. And you might be saying, well, okay, Ken, what's wrong with a king, particularly back in those days, acquiring a whole lot of horses? It seems like a wise thing to do. But let's look again at that verse in Deuteronomy, that Deuteronomy seventeen sixteen verse, because it says this. Uh, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more for them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. The poor choice here isn't that Solomon necessarily wanted some horses. It's that he's disobeying the Lord. He's disobeying the law. And he should have known better. The following verses to that are Deuteronomy uh, chapter 17, verses 18 and 19. And it tells us, and this is for a new king, it says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and the statutes and doing them. Solomon should have known better. He should have known not to do that. And yet he chose to disobey, and he did exactly what he should have been reading to himself every day that he shouldn't be doing. And I would tell us again, none of us are probably in any danger of acquiring too many horses. Uh, I don't think that's a problem for any of us. But I think the lesson for us is, what are we acquiring? Are we acquiring, maybe it's cars, maybe it's household goods or tools or toys or whatever it may be. Are we acquiring anything that's taking our eyes off the Lord? When we buy stuff and we start acquiring many things, we got to ask ourselves, is this for God's glory or is this for my glory? Is this driving me closer to God or is this driving me farther away from God? How can I use what God has given me for his glory? Solomon went on to tell us in Proverbs 8 that wisdom 
is better than jewels, or in this case, all the acquisitions or money. Wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire can't compare to her. Well, I think every one of us probably in here would agree that our Bibles are a treasure to us, are they not? It's a treasure to us. But do we treat it like that? Do we treat the Word of God like that? Since it's the source of wisdom, are we seeking it? Are we studying it every day? Are we getting in there and learning from it? Or do we set it aside? Do we treat it like a treasure and hold it in high esteem? Or is it just something that sits aside? Once again, it's these little decisions. It's these points that slowly start taking us off course where we're not going to hit our mark. And they're the things we've got to be careful of. Well, if those orange batons were uh, starting to shift earlier, they're probably doing this now. The guys are like, wait a minute, stop, stop. Because Solomon's life, things are starting to really go off the rails. Think of, uh, I want you to look in... Um, First Kings, it tells us, remember in First Kings 6 and 7, we talked about how long it took Solomon to build God's temple. And he spent seven years building God's temple. But the scriptures go on and tell us he then took 13 years on building his own house. He took twice as much time building his own house that he did on God's house. And so then he also built, uh, he built a palace for Pharaoh's daughter as well. And I'm sure he probably built something for all those other wives we're going to see that he had. Um, but the important thing here, I think, is not necessarily that he was, he obviously was given great wealth. And you're probably saying, yeah, for a king to have a nice palace, not a big deal. And I would agree with you. I think the issue here is the time. It was the priorities. It was the reflection of the time of Solomon's life, of how much time he was spending on himself and on the wives. And that's what the, uh, you know, it was his priorities that were starting to get off track. And that's what we've got to be worried about in our own life. I think it was great. Uh, Nate Bramson here, if you remember a few weeks ago, gave us a really good or- exhortation on practicing hospitality with our homes. And if you remember that, he, he mentioned that. And I would say it's a great thing to remember. How can we each show hospitality? How can, are we accepting hospitality when it's offered to us? We have an incredible opportunity to do that. We can fellowship with one another. We can encourage one another. We can help keep each other accountable and keep ourselves on track. Or maybe God's calling you to use your home for a small group. Uh, Maybe you're going to get together with some neighbors. Maybe you can practice some lifestyle evangelism. In fact, one of our small groups this fall is going to be doing just that. They're going to be studying the idea of lifestyle evangelism and reaching your neighbors. Maybe God's calling you to do that. The important thing is, will you follow through and do it? If God's calling you for that, follow through and do it. Will God's work be a priority in your life? Again, going back to that concept of the halftime thing. Is that where our priorities are going to be? Well, if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 11, if you move forward to 1 Kings 11, I just lost my place here. 1 Kings 11 in the first eight verses are the low point in Scripture of Solomon's life. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8, give us just a list of the tragic flaws of Solomon's life. And let me read them for you. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. 
For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord uh, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. It's really a sad set of verses to read of what Solomon fell into. As a matter of fact, if you go back and study those idols that he built sacrifices to and it says that they worshipped at, all four of those that are listed there all fall under one category. It's money, sex, and power. It's some of the, just the typical things we see all the time. As a matter of fact, Scripture warns us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, it says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, And the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And we also learn in James 1.14 that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived and gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Again, these are some of the traps that Solomon fell into. And again, the lesson for us is to examine ourselves. Examine our own life and our own hearts and our where's, uh, you know, what is going on in our lives. Are we doing that and making adjustments so that we don't fall into these traps? Now, as I begin to wrap this up, I want to do want to address one question that may be going through your, that go through your minds as you, as you go through and read all this about Solomon. You might be asking yourself, how do I reconcile the fact that Solomon was given this incredible wisdom from God and yet he made all of these poor choices? How do I put that together? Well, I think we've got to learn from this that even the greatest spiritual gifts that God may give us, they don't operate independently of the conditions of our heart. When our hearts turn from God, even those spiritual gifts can be used against God. Solomon let his wisdom turn to folly. And here's probably the follow-up question you're thinking to that. If Solomon's wisdom couldn't keep him faithful to God... What hope do I have? It's a great question. But I would tell you that Solomon, I think, looked at the gift and not the giver of the gift. He didn't look at his heart and who gave him all that wisdom and discernment. And I think the key for us, if we continue to examine our hearts and we continue to stay in God's word and stay in Scripture and we focus on him and seek to do what's right and follow his will, that's how we're going to stay faithful. That's how we do it. We're going to be like the man of God. It mentions in Psalm chapter 1, where it says, And on his law, God's law, he meditates day and night, and his leaf does not wither. That's how we stay faithful. We stay true to God's word. But let me go back, finish off here in the text. The latter part of 1 Kings 11, if you go into verses 11 through 25, it actually then tells us what are the consequences. So what happened of all this? Well, verses 11 and 25 give us the consequences of Solomon's downfall. It tells us first that Solomon, uh, for the kingdom of Solomon would be torn away from his descendants. And it goes on to tell us that Solomon was given three adversaries. First, it mentions Hadad and the Edomites, who were on his southern border. So now he had some problems on his southern border. 
And then it mentions reason in Damascus on his northern border. So now he's got, he's got pressures and, and issues on each of the uh, borders. And then it mentions Jeroboam. And that was all internal rebellion. So he had border problems and he had internal problems uh, going on in his kingdom. The peace that was being enjoyed during Solomon's reign was starting to turn to some conflict. However, if you read right in the middle of that, it also reminds us that God promised him that he would keep a remnant. God, there would be a remnant that would remain from Solomon's uh, kingdom for the sake of David, it says, and for Jerusalem, which God had chosen. It's a reminder to me of Ephesians chapter 2 and the first seven verses where it reminds us that we are all objects of wrath who have been shown mercy. God is a God of mercy, and he mercifully left a remnant of Solomon's kingdom. And ultimately, that was all part of David's royal line. And as everything that we just uh, worshiped the Lord for this morning, that ultimately ended up in Jesus Christ that comes down all the way down to Jesus Christ, our perfect Savior, who gave himself for us. It's ex- everything that we, we sang about and heard about this morning. Um, so the question then, the final question, is that it for Solomon? Did he learn from his mistakes? Did he leave us any clues on what we should do and how we should live our lives? Well, luckily for us, the answer is yes, he did. The book of Ecclesiastes is actually like Solomon's journal. I had some uh, great—I heard some great preaching a, a month ago on this because um, I know I don't know about you, but the book of Ecclesiastes—the first thing I always think about is meaningless, meaningless, and vanity, vanity. Um, but there's a lot of wisdom in there. It's way—it goes way beyond that, and we can learn a lot more from it. Here's a couple things that Solomon would have us learn uh, that he mentioned in Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 2:25, Solomon warned us or tells us that apart from God, we are not going to find enjoyment in this life. We need to stay in the Lord. In Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon reminds us that God has made everything beautiful in its time. But note, that's God's time. That may not necessarily be your time. Things don't typically go too well when you try to circumvent God's time. In Ecclesiastes 5, we learn that the man of God doesn't need to let things of this world overshadow the fact that... um, The plans God has put for your life are a divine blessing for you. They're going to keep you. And I love the way it puts us at the end of verse 20 in Ecclesiastes 5. It says, the man of God that's doing God's work will be kept busy and occupied with gladness of heart. How do you stay faithful? You want gladness of heart in your work? Follow what the Lord has called you to do. And then in Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon sums it up. He says, the end of the matter... All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. He reminds us that we need to fear God, and that's not just fearing the judgment. We do need to fear the judgment of God, but we need to give God the respect that is due him. It's the sovereignty of God that brings about kind of a humble reverence or awe in our lives of who God is. And it tells us the whole duty of man really involves a full... uh, Faith in God, as we walk along, a, you know, a, uh, a genuine faith in God is the whole duty of man. Now, as I told you the last time I spoke, you're not being dismissed. You're being sent. What are you being sent to do? Well, what did we learn from Solomon? You're being sent to follow God and to walk in his ways. You're being sent to treasure his word, to be hospitable. You're being sent to learn from the good things that Solomon did in his life and to replicate those. And you're being told 
and being sent to look for those warning signs. Look for those signs in your life where your batons maybe are over here and they need to come back to here. That we could each follow the Lord, as it says in those verses, that we would follow the Lord all the days of our life. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we just thank you. Uh, We thank you that we can learn from your word. We thank you that uh, you give us these stories, that you don't hide the flaws of some of the people that have come before us. We thank you that we can learn from things that were good in Solomon's life. We can do those. And Lord, we can learn some of those flaws. We can avoid the things of the world, the, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Lord, help us not to fall into those traps. But Lord, that we would each assess where we are, that we would assure that we are walking with you, uh, that we would um, just continually seek your will in our lives. And Lord, help us not to be lazy, but help us to do that. When you've called us to do something, to, to take action and be a people of action for you. So we just lift this up before you. Help us to take this forth and to live this out in our lives into a world that needs it so much and they need you so badly, Lord. And so we thank you for this time and we just lift it up now before you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.